Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives. I'm your host, Maggie Lemire, and today I'm joined by a special co-host, Mariangela Mihai, and we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice. Uh, welcome, Mariangela. Also, uh, I call you MJ. Uh, to the co-hosting chair for today. We're so glad to have you. Uh, thank you, Maggie, for having me. I'm really excited about the base episode. Yeah, so you've actually been um, helping with the show since its founding, since our first event, and producing as a member of Ethnocene. Um, do you want to tell our listener, listeners a little bit more about yourself and sort of why you have chosen to be part of this Bad Feminist uh, podcast project? Um, so I guess in a nutshell, uh, you know, I'm an anthropologist and filmmaker. I'm originally from Romania, but I have lived half of my life in the United States now. And I've been um, involved in this collaboration between Ethnocene and Riza Collective that goes beyond the podcast and relates to other activities that have to do with filmmaking and collaboration. Um, but in terms of uh, the veterans making films and uh, our first public appearances, I was very, very excited about this framework because it felt like something that finally answered a few questions for me that were ongoing. Uh, and one of that question was, what does it really mean to be a feminist, right? Because I always felt like being an absolute failure at it. I was coming from, and I'm coming from an Eastern European context when I was growing up. Feminist discourse was, I don't know, kind of, you know, I could not really relate to it in, in the Eastern European context. And when I moved to the U.S., I f- could not relate to it in Western context either because I didn't have the jargon to understand the intersectionality of this process, right? It really, it's a sad thing, but it, it, I had to go to get a Ph.D. in anthropology to understand why it doesn't speak to me. So, uh, as you can see, it's a little bit of a complex thing, but this is where I'm coming from uh, to, to to this conversation, basically. So, as a filmmaker, sort of being brought up in the margins, as they say, and speaking with, uh, with, with a kind of voice that was not highlighted, I'm just trying to better my practice and be a, a bad feminist, but also a really good one, if possible. Right on. And I think that's the point, right? We're all trying to better our practice as part of this bad feminist uh, filmmaking community. Um, and now that you went and got a, a PhD, you can have jargon that I don't understand and <laughs> teach me and others. Um, but anyways, we're really grateful to have you here and for the perspective that you bring, you know, not only to this episode, but to the bad feminist making films overall. And I'm really excited about today's show. We're going to be talking about the intersection of human rights and filmmaking, you know, how they complement one another, the tensions, how the practices relate, how they differ. 
uh, what does it mean to be a human rights activist and advocate and filmmaker at the same time? Um, are those together as one identity or are they separate? And so we're going to be speaking with a, a leading human rights advocate and a filmmaker, Mona Nikara, um, who sort of similar to a lot of the folks in Ethnocene and Riza transitioned from human rights um, into film work. Um, we're going to hear about her journey and some of her projects, which are quite amazing. So MJ, why is human rights and filmmaking an important topic for bad feminists making films from your perspective? You know, I think it's also just a little bit of a matter of coincidence that uh, us, the, the folks at Edmondson Film Collective, kind of uh, came into the academia with a background in human rights activism and, and, and a keen interest in uh, how to transform discourse and promote uh, you know, social justice through everything we do, not just writing or those kind of engagements. So it was a fortunate encounter we had with each other. And uh, once we formed this film collective and then collaborated, you know, with Visa Collective, we uh, realized that uh, it's just a must. We, we, we can't make films, uh, in, you know, just to make films in a way. So we have to engage these conversations in our praxis and in our collaboration with uh, the people we make films with, you know, not make films just about people and so on and so forth. Yeah, so for me, this question of human rights and filmmaking and how the two come together, relate, differ, um, it is sort of central to the idea of feminist filmmaking because as feminist filmmakers, we really are, want to be thoughtful about the agency of each person as a participant, you know, not as like a subject and their rights are sort of central and fundamental. Um, but also I think right now we're kind of living in this era of like the impact campaign and impact producing, which is sort of, I'm not very familiar with it you know, compared to many other people, but it sort of seems like it's like there's this disconnect. Like you make the film and then you get different grants to go out and have an NGO campaign to make an impact. And not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but I'm interested um, in how we can have that deeper perspective kind of woven into the entire experience. And I'm also curious about the tensions of having to sort of have this point or this advocacy agenda when so much of great filmmaking is about, you know, having people ask deep questions and not have clear answers or have shifts of perceptions and things that aren't, aren't as clear to take away, but yet we do want to have an impact. So how do we negotiate these things um, as human rights activists and also artists? So these are some of the things that I've been thinking about and also that, you know, Riza Collective has been thinking about. Uh, because I think like the best stories are those that are truly complex, which I don't think takes anything away from human rights, but it's not typically the way human rights advocacy works. So I'll just be really curious to hear, you know, from Mona's perspective, how these scenes fit together and how they've played out practically with her work, you know, in Romania and beyond. Uh, so let's introduce mm. Mona. We've been we've been waxing poetic here for a minute. Do you want to bring Do you want to read uh, Mona's bio and bring her in? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so, uh, Mona Nikwara started working in film in 1997 as an associate producer for Children Underground, which received the special jury prize of the 2001 Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. Her directorial debut, 
Our School premiered in the U.S. at the 2011 Tribeca Film Festival, went on to over 70 festivals worldwide, was awarded the Grand Jury Prize for Best U.S. Feature at AFI Silver Dot, and was nominated for Best Eastern European Documentary at the Silver Eye Awards and for Best Romanian Documentary at the GOPRO Awards. Uh, Mona also works as a festival programmer for One World Romania and uh, FRAD and has taught film, writing, and literature at Columbia University, the Cooper Union, New York University, and Rutgers. Oh my, very impressive, Mona, and uh, welcome to our show. We are very happy to have you with us today. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Uh, and Mona just came in um, yesterday from, from a big trip, so we're, we're excited to hear about that and also really grateful, especially for your time today. But Mona, let's hear a little bit more about you, your background. How did you get into human rights work? How did you get into filmmaking? Tell us a little bit of your story. Well, um, my, my background fundamentally is a, in literature, actually, and languages. I started out as a writer um, as a teenager in Romania, and then I started to train sort of formally. I went to university uh, studying English and Romanian literature and languages, and then went on to Columbia from Bucharest University to Columbia in New York to study also literature. And human rights sort of came in um, on a tangent, um, like for many of us, actually, during the uh, Romanian Revolution in 1989, human rights was the language, actually, of, of democracy and was the new language that we all needed to, to not just learn but to apply. And I became interested in that, and I started working with human rights groups in Romania. And I worked for about a total of, like, five years uh, on and off. But three, the last three years very consistently up until 1995 when I moved to New York and then continued to sort of sneak away over the summers from Columbia for my uh, doctoral studies at Columbia to continue to do human rights work primarily in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and I, I sort of stumbled into filmmaking around 1997, 1998 when somebody, a fellow Romanian student uh, at, a, at a New York university asked me to translate, to help translate the footage for this film that was documentary film that was being shot in Romania. Um, and this, this was got to be like one of those gifts that gives you a little bit of extra money in grad school, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, being is actually a you know a three-year involvement in the project, and I became associate producer on the project, doing a bunch of other things, participating in production, uh, helping with uh, raising some money, and also working. And this was my actually my actual film school, working with the editor um, Jonathan Oppenheim of that film, who actually taught me uh, storytelling, film storytelling, more than anybody else. And I keep going back to that moment as the moment I got hooked on film. It wasn't during production or anything. It was actually in post-production working with the editor. Mm. What was it about that process and the storytelling that you think hooked you um, in terms of your trajectory and, and sort of changed it? I 
understood um, emotional storytelling in a way that spoke to the writer bit in me, actually, not to the activist bit in me. Uh, it made it, it. It sort of made me understand how you actually hook a story and a message in an emotional manner uh, in the viewer, and what you know what the power of film actually is in terms of like sneaking up all of these emotions and all of this empathy on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first two, you know, um, films that. W- that some of the more notable films that you've worked on that are we just read about in your bio, you know, focused on the human rights situation um, related to children in particular. So I wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also kind of the broader topics that you'd been working on as a human rights activist and then as a filmmaker and and in particular maybe for an audience that's not as familiar um, with Romania and Eastern Europe. Well, um, I'm trying to figure out. There's a few questions embedded in there. Yes, <laughs> I'm trying to to figure out. Uh, I think the best way to to do it is to just basically tell a story, which has to do with actually my work as a human rights activist. I started working um, as a human rights activist, working primarily with minorities, sexual minorities, as well as national minorities, ethnic minorities in Romania. And then I, I continued to do that kind of work on, um, a, on a European level. And sometime in uh, the early 2000s, I was working out of Budapest, not Bucharest, um, out of Budapest with Roma rights groups on issues having to do with school segregation and the school segregation of Roma children and getting sort of very frustrated with all the other activists that the story that is, you know, is a, is, is a tremendous scandal, uh, that the scandal of segregation actually has no traction in the public, um, in the public eye, and there's no understanding of what segregation looks like for everybody involved and what the segregation should look like for everybody involved. And um, with a couple of friends of mine, we first devised this idea that we'd go to a place a segregated, uh, a, a, a small location that has a segregated school, and we'd look at the factors uh, that play into it and all the actors and sort of paint the portrait of the community and an understanding of what it would take to do uh, desegregation and who the stakeholders would be. Now, for a variety of reasons, one of which is that all of us, when we concocted this plan, need to have jobs and also to stay with their kids at home, right? This, uh, uh, this plan did not pan Sometime in, when was it? In 2005, I heard that the Romanian government was going to actually give European funds to uh, several schools in Romania to do desegregation. And I, I somehow we all clicked for me uh, that this would be a good topic for a film. And I started to do research and figure out, like, which would be the locations where we'd film, you know, this process of desegregation on Romanian state money. This had never happened before in Romania. So I was interested in looking at, you know, how people would react to it. There was no template for it at the time. And um, for a variety of reasons... We uh, picked um, 
a small place in Transylvania, which at the time actually looked like the only place that was willing to do desegregation. Uh, we wanted also to film in, in Transylvania. We visited several locations, but we wanted to film in Transylvania because both me and my uh, camera person uh, were from Transylvania. And uh, we decided, okay, this is, we can actually, we know this language, we know this place, we know the cultural habits, we know how to paint a portrait of this community. Um, my co-director at the time, Miruna Kogakosma, was not from Transylvania, so she suffered bitterly uh, throughout mm. the process. I'm kidding. I'm just joking. Uh, but we started filming, thinking that we were going to film for just one year, desegregation process, which turned, which turned out to be a desegregation process only on the surface, and the community was basically biding their time to resegregate the Roma kids. And we kept following the story over a period of six, uh, four, uh, four years, and then we added to that two years of editing, by which time um, I realized that the story was complicated and was if it had if it could be told well it had to be told not in activist terms but in art terms so i went into the process basically as as an activist and i came out an artist is is how i how i think of myself now more than anything else so you know mona when i watched the film uh, you know first of all it, it was uh, deeply touching um and and beautiful and um it Thank was really you. Great for me to see. I agree I, with I, I that. Also, I really loved it. Yeah. Um, I I also did some work with the Roma community back when I was in Romania, so it spoke to me uh, sort of in you know as the activist in me as well. But uh, when I was watching it, you know, I guess because of my anthropological training, I was like, this is an ethnographic film <laughs> type of thing mm. because. It, you could tell the deep research that went into it and the patience that took to follow those stories over the years, as well as, I guess, the love came through, you know? It, 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 it was clear to me that your team, the people you worked with to make this film, put a, a labor of love into making this film. Without it, uh, those nuances of, you know, like deep-seated Romanian racism and, and, and you know, speaking in parables just to, to give the same message of rejection and whatnot would have not come through without uh, your, your patience and love, right? And so my question to you would be a little bit about your positionality because I know it's, it's actually not easy to get access to a story like this and it's not easy to to navigate uh, so many actors that have such different interests, right? Uh, so if you could speak about that a little bit and perhaps also about how it was to work with children because they are the, the main collaborators you have. They are, mm -hmm. you know, they are the main artists. They are the poets of the film. And uh, that really picked my curiosity. Children are easy and difficult to, to work with. Well, um, the first question about, is about positionality, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's sort of, part of it is, is comes naturally. Um, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, I, I don't feel like it's ideological at all. <laughs> 
for uh, for me, nor should it be, because if it if it is, you know, people can sniff it, can smell it miles away. So I went into it, so it was a very clear understanding of what I wanted to follow. And that became very clear within, you know, it's a small town where we filmed. <laughs> that became very clear within, uh, uh, within a day or two to everybody in that small town. And in the beginning, we were we felt a little worried because we came in as outsiders to both communities, both to the Romanian community and to the Roma community. And uh, we were looking for something that neither community quite understood, uh, including the Roma community. Was, was, they, they were not clear at the time as to what a film could accomplish or would accomplish. And we tried to be um, extremely transparent about the effects of the film on everyone. Um, one of the strange things that happens is that people, you know, when they see a camera, they develop hope that the camera can help them mm. in some way. We're very invested in this idea that the camera can help us or the kind of media exposure can help us. And I think one of the jobs that we can do as, as documentary filmmakers dissuade people of that. <laughs> and tell them, you know, it's probably not going to help you. If anything, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your immediate, you know, your relationship with your immediate neighbors or with the local authorities. But here is the greater job that we hope that this film will do. If the film is good, if the film gets shown, if, if, if. So, so like, tampering down the hope in a manner that, is transparent, just simply, simply transparent. It's about leveling, leveling with the, all the participants, right? And making sure that everybody understands the strange power dynamics or lack thereof that are involved in, in making a documentary. The other thing that I was very clear about is that, you know, I have this theory that making a documentary is a form of abuse. Uh, mm -hmm. that is actually the, the documentary is substituting the lived experience of a person uh, with a story that is made up by an author. And no matter how, how journalistic your approach, let's say that way, how fact-based your approach, what you end up doing eventually is constructing an emotional story and constructing a story that is yours and a vision that is yours. The minute you point the camera in a direction, that is your decision. And that gets uh, strangely over time substituted to the lived experience of the participants. This is even more true actually with children. Mm. Uh, when you work with children uh, who may not have a strong memory of a particular time in their life, and then see, they see the film uh, in, a, in its finished form, which ends up being much more powerful than their lived experience because it's edited and compressed and turned into something that you, you give meaning to as an author, right? And they see that as their own experience. It, it gets substituted to their own experience. And I, you know, it's one of those things that I wish, I wish, we could do without, but at the same time, we can't.
We can't. And if we want to tell stories that we think is important, which is a very narcissistic thing, honestly, you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to be very, very clear with everyone as to what the effects are and what actually happens when your life gets turned into a documentary in one way or another. And it, it's, I mean, it's strange. I'm still following several of the kids, uh, and I've, I've met some of the kids who were involved in our school in my first film, and some of them were affected by the film, and they, they felt like the, the film reflected their lived experience, even though I strongly suspect it did not fully <laughs> reflect their lived experience by necessity. You know, it's an edited product at clocking at like whatever 93 minutes or whatever it is and some of them were were unaffected by it but just saw it as something that's completely outside their lives Mm -hmm. and even though they they looked at it fondly as you know as almost a home movie that's the other that's the other danger to you look at docs that were made about yourself as an individual earlier, and you look them at them a little bit as home movies, except that the contract in how home movies is entirely different than it is with you know participating in a documentary. So, Mona, that um, actually makes me a little bit curious about what was the what do you think, if any, uh, was the impact of your movie uh, locally there in in Romania. Be, uh, beyond, um, uh, you know, the, the side effects that it has on the participants? <laughs> it's a question that I can't answer very well, even though I did I did go through all of this, like, impact-producing stuff, right? Especially as a, as, as, as a former human rights activist. I knew how to do this. <laughs> I knew how to get, um, you know, activist organizations that I had prior relationships with to use the film. I had a broader campaign also with Amnesty International. I had the film shown to ministers of education, to, you know, the European Parliament, in the U.S. Congress, in all of the places where, like, it was important for people, you know, who decide on funding for for desegregation uh, or who decide on any kind of education policy uh, to see them. And I think in some ways it's had an effect. I know, you know, I've had, like, judges who saw the films in their training come to me and say, you're the woman who made that film. I was like, I really, you know, but that, that really had an effect on me because I didn't, I never realized what segregation actually looked like, and I never saw it from the perspective of, of, of the Roma. I actually only saw it from my own perspective, which is a majority perspective. Um, it was sh- it was shown um, a lot in ministries in terms of uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, and hopefully it has some effect on the people that that saw it. I know that a lot of activists have used it, and um, I've had the strange pleasure of sitting next to one that actually could could mouse lines from the films as he saw it uh, and had seen it like four or five times already. But, you know, in terms of actually measuring that impact, it's very hard. 
And it's very hard to know if progress is made, you know, which is the bit that belongs to the film and which is the bit that belongs to everybody else who's working their butt off on these campaigns and all these issues for years and decades, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very yeah. um, cautious in terms of describing anything that happened as a result, uh, you know, after the film came out as impacts that came from the film. If anything, sort of our contribution is making sure that the people who can use the film in their work have it available and identifying, you know, those people and just keeping our mouths shut otherwise. I really, my uh, my camera guy um, sort of laughed at me when we started making our school and and said, you know, uh, said, you really think that a film can change the world? You know, if you're lucky, you can change one person. And you can change one person's mind, and that's that's a good film. And I, I that stuck with me, because it felt unfair at the time. But the more I worked on the film, and the more I realized the limits and the potential of human rights filmmaking, um, I, I, I felt that he was very, very right. Well... Uh, that all resonates so much the deeper into the journey. I think the more you realize both the power, but also the limitations. Um, and let's take a quick break. We're talking to Mona Nikara about human rights and filmmaking on bad feminist making films. Radio. Welcome back to Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives on Full Service Radio. And uh, today we're talking to Mona Nikara about human rights and filmmaking. And Mona, you said something a little a little while ago that you started um, our school, this film project we've been discussing, um, as an activist and you came out as an artist. And this really resonated with me in terms of my own journey. You know, I've been sort of involved in human rights activism um, since middle school, high school, very deeply. But now I, I really, I, and you also called yourself at one point today a former human rights advocate or activist. So I wanted yes. to, to know if you could talk a little bit more about that journey. One is how I describe myself very often. Oh, funny. Yeah, I mean, because I don't know. I think one thing for me, it's a little bit different, but also similar. I, I published a book about human rights in Myanmar that was all about, it was all stories. It's 500 pages mm-hmm. long. It was years of my life. And for a long time, I was doing advocacy, human rights advocacy, and I thought I knew so much, you know, looking back. And when I got deep into the stories, I saw like all of these levels of, of complexity um, and really questioned my own relationship to all of that and realized my role was to maybe bring forward more of those questions with the access that I had and the ability to travel sort of between worlds mm-hmm. uh, and that I was more comfortable with that role of sort of bringing forward ideas, people to think about and questions rather than telling them what to think, which I guess goes more to this like initial idea I was talking about why I'm interested in this topic. So for you... <laughs> Why former human rights activists? Why artists now? What 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 distinguishes them for you? I think um, 
Human rights activism is is a very useful tool, but it's also a very limitative tool. I I I became I started to find it actually very limiting when I realized that I can train people in the mechanics of writing up a case, researching a case, writing it up to fit a particular box, you know, in like the European Convention of Human Rights in some kind of UN treaties on, on human rights to, to fit that box and to ask for specific solutions and recommendations. And the whole thing is, one, mechanical, two, uh, the victim, you know, the humans involved in it, <laughs> the humans at the, at, at, the, at the root of each of these cases are called victims. And they end up being sort of at the bottom of this food chain, and they provide information to experts who then package them, package the information in order for that information to speak to the interests of the state in some in some way, and to sort of to speak this the strange legalese that we all speak in in the human rights world. And somewhere along the way, the victim becomes at best a client or mm -hmm. is completely forgotten because the client for the advocate becomes the organization or the issue that they're trying to promote. So it gets ever more simplified and, and we sort of lose track of, of the interests of those people that we're supposed to protect somewhere along the way and um, I mean this also this 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 was something that um, an incipient form I discovered in the mid to late 90s when I started working with sexual minorities in Romania at the time um, homosexual sex was punished by prison right and we go to prison and pick out prisons and pick out cases and get people out uh, and that also felt very, very good until we got people out of, we got a couple of boys out of prison. We drank a beer with them and when they got out of prison. And then we said goodbye, which is what human rights activists do when, you know, their work is done. And uh, less than a year later, one of them committed suicide because he had been released back into a world that knew uh, that he was gay that identity carried a lot of stigma. Uh, it was impossible for him to find a place, to find even work um, in, in that world. And we failed him. You know, we got him out from one small prison into a, big, a bigger prison, and we lost sight of the fact that society at large, at, at large was, was a prison and that we actually needed to do not just the very simple human rights work, uh, mechanical human rights work of identifying cases, fighting for them with legal means, getting people out and then leaving, but to actually really build support and, and build a more humane world around, around these people um, uh, that we call human rights victims, to get mm -hmm. them integrated rather than picked out as victims, as human rights victims, and then abandoned. Well, and yeah, I mean, speaking of like the culture and the world, I think, you know, for me, what part of why I love filmmaking and storytelling is that is where that sort of paradigm shift work is happening. Mm -hmm. in, in addition to that structural work that human rights activists and advocates do, yeah. 
um, we have to change our stories and the worlds people get to exist in. But you talked a little bit about your relationship to, you know, um, I suppose in a way like a client in a human rights case. As a filmmaker who is still touching on these issues that include injustice, um, how do you personally, how are you navigating your relationship to your participants or your subjects after the fact, after the filming process, if it's different for you? I do, it's case by case. It depends on the people. It depends on the project. Um, it's, it's really, it's a terrible burden. Yeah. It's a terrible burden that you take on very early on um, in a project. And you kind of have to see it through. As, as documentary filmmakers and as artists, we have very little power to really help someone. The only thing that we can do is, well, lend an ear, be, be sympathetic, be understanding, try to actually pay attention. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's our own form of uh, moneyless uh, generosity. Um, and those are relationships that you, that, you know, you carry for the rest of your life in, in one way or another, whether you keep in touch with the people or it's just pure guilt for not being able to keep in touch with the people, but they're, they're with you. They're with you at, at all times and, um, they're with you in complicated ways too, because when, when you start, you know, it's one thing when you film. And it's another thing when you start editing and you work, you, you know, that, you know, you, you, you stare at the same people forever and ever for hours and hours and hundreds of hours. And you develop an entirely different relationship with them as participants in your documentary or as characters, rather, when you're editing that influences your feelings. I remember like in one of the projects that I worked, I realized that I was starting to have negative feelings for some of the kids uh, in one of the projects that I worked on at one point, and I couldn't mm-hmm. figure out why. And I had spent too much time with them. Mm-hmm. I had spent too much time with them, and I had spent too much time with the version that I was seeing mm-hmm. on the edit room screen. It's a tough thing to n- negotiate for yourself and also to negotiate with the participants. The only thing that I do know is that it differs from one person to another and it matters a lot, a hell of a lot um, how you introduce yourself and how you position yourself at the very beginning. It Mm -hmm. has to be as fully transparent as possible, not only because you know, you're asking people to give something of of themselves, so you have to give something of yourself, but also because you have to establish actual trust, and nobody, no, no human actually can be can be fooled for as long a time as you need to work on on a documentary. Hmm. Well, what you're uh, speaking oh, to really uh, talks to like the necess- necessity of having integrity in the process, essentially, mm-hmm. and the real life messiness, um, and and how the process and the act of being present in the ways that you are is really important and also we don't make documentary films about like our best friends necessarily these are real complicated people and so it's messy Uh, great characters are dynamic yeah but i also like i don't know about you but i found that i can't make films about people that i don't like or that i don't empathize (laughs) that i can't empathize Mm -hmm. with i just can't that sort of simplifies things matters a little bit i hear you 
speaking of complicated uh, characters, uh, before we finish the show, I would like to get a little bit to your latest project, which is The Distance Between Me and Me. And I know you're completely burned out of talking about this film because you just <laughs> returned from the premiere in Romania where you had hundreds of Q&A sessions and whatnot. A, a very quick comment I wanted to make because you talked about how you entered as a human rights activist and kind of exited or you're in the process of uh, you know, being an artist and whatnot. I thought this film was a tour de force in, in, in terms of artistry. It was so subtle and, and very touching. It's a film about Nina Kassian, which is a poet, musician, intellectual with a very interesting uh, past who ended uh, being in exile in the United States eventually. And you got to make a film with her, you and your uh, your team, right? It's a, it's a, it's co-directed. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, why this film, Nina Kassian's uh, figure. What what made you want to work with her and have this seven-year-long commitment to, to a very deep and, and beautiful project? Well, it's a very different film than anything that I had made before, and I wouldn't have made it. I, I wouldn't have come up with the idea of making a film about Nina Garcian if uh, my producer, Ada Solomon, hadn't actually wanted to do it. Uh, she had wanted to do one for a very long time, and she came to me with this, this idea, and because I knew Nina's poetry and I knew a little bit about her story, I said yes right away. And then I, I proceeded to do research and figure out, okay, why is this a film and not a book, let's say. So the deeper I got into it, the more interesting Nina's story became to me. And it's, it's, it's a complicated story about the left-wing avant-garde of the 40s that turned uh, into um, a complicit body of artists, <laughs> basically, in uh, during during Stalinist during the Stalinist years in Romania, and then started breaking off with the regime slowly. This is not just Nina's story; it is basically a story of of the left in that part of the world. Um, and I was interested in looking at Nina, who also is a beautiful, wonderful poet and a very interesting character. You know, she slept with everyone. She smoked and drank her entire life. She's got this uh, life force in her that was still very much in evidence in her late 80s when we interviewed her. And it was, it, it was a very interesting process, discovering her, discovering my relationship with her. Also, it was the first time that I was working with another artist who had a very clear understanding that whatever I was doing, it was going to be mine. She, she kept saying, this is your film, girls, it's not mine. And she felt like she had said everything she needed to say in her memoirs, and she did, wasn't particularly invested in having a statue of herself, was actually quite tough on herself. So she was very, very different dynamic in making the film. I felt like the power dynamics was very different from what it, it would have been had I, you know, what, what it was when I was working on Children Underground with Edith Belsberg or when I was working with Miruna on uh, our school. You, you, you mentioned on our pre-call uh, briefly that uh, you kind of tried to reconstruct uh, uh, Nina's figure from, you know, uh, archives and the fragmented mm -hmm. memories of Romanians as well as, as herself. Uh, and I, I, what came to the film very powerfully was 
something that surprised me and moved me deeply, which was how much of a feminist she was in a time when, yeah. you know, uh, there was so much censorship and how uh, subtle she was. You know, I, I mean, she wrote children's stories that critiqued the regime in a way. Uh, I mean, in a direct way, actually. So, because we were speaking earlier in the beginning, I said that, you know, I couldn't quite connect to uh, Romanian feminism. And that was just a, a large comment uh, that, you know, it's quite inaccurate. It, of course, in the trenches, women have always resisted and enacted some forms of feminism. And with Nina comes true so deeply. So I have a question for you. Now that you had a conversation with the Romanian society recently through this film that uh, you, you made, where do you think uh, we stand in terms of feminism in Romania? What were some surprising moments, if any, uh, prompted by the film and the conversation? Um, it's, it's really, it's kind of early for me to talk about how the film was received, just because it's still very fresh. What's clear is that a lot of people uh, have, have been going to see it for a variety of reasons. You know, some of, some of them love Nina's character and love her as a poet and love her because she wrote uh, uh, a lot of children's literature that we all grew up with. Some of them hate her for being a Stalinist, for having been a Stalinist. Some of them hate, hate her for having been a feminist that was also quite free with her sexuality. Some of them hate her for giving up her communist ideals towards the end of her life or at least uh, uh, calling herself a dissident. A lot of people resent that. A lot of people like that. It seems that both on the right and on the left, there are several different responses, both positive and negative. So it's very hard for me to sift through all of that. The only thing that's very clear is that it started, it started a conversation in Romanian society, at least, about the relationship with, uh, between art and politics, on the one hand, uh, about uh, the complexity of, of the, the left in the 1940s you know, and 50s and even 60s. And it also started a conversation about female artists. And one of the things that we kept being asked, you know, is like, why, why Nina Kassian and not X or Y or Z? And the answer is like, why not Nina Kassian? And for us, you know, what interested us is seeing a person that connects and relates to her own past in a complicated way. Nothing else. Uh, we didn't seek to make a film about a particular poet, of a, about a female cultural figure. It just happened that this this one that we were interested in, because we wanted to see how she tells the story of her own past and how she, you know, makes the calculus at the end of of her life about uh, what what she did right and what she did wrong. This happened to be Nina Kassian, but um, it wasn't because we were chasing any kind of topic or we wanted to do a portrait or a, a biopic, God forbid, of anyone. Um, this uh, multiplicity of stories that are juxtaposed up upon her figure, you know, from interpretations and rumors and whatnot, uh, really came to the film. I mean, it was a surprise because I had... Uh, a complete flat understanding of who she was. So I love to discover to discover her through your lens, for sure. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to ask another question because we have to um, to kind of wrap up. Maggie will help us do that. Um, 
but I was going to say that sometimes also filmmaking kind of breaks your heart, right? Because Nina passed away <laughs> while you were making this film, and she she did not get a chance to see it. Yeah. Yes. She seems Thank like. Thank you so much for having for having me. Oh yes, certainly. It's been um, incredible to learn from you, Mona, and I'm sure that the uh, the current communities of folks who are following in Nina's footsteps, whether they're artists or leftists to human rights activists, um, can also yeah. probably take some deep lessons from this. Because, of course, you know, filmmaking is a reflexive practice, and watching films contributes to our practice, whether it's organizing or filmmaking. Um, so thank you for sharing all of your really deep um, experience. And oh, there's so much more I wish we could talk to you about. But thanks for being on the show today. Thank you you very much much for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners. This has been another episode of Bad Feminist Making Films, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.